I'm um, extremely pleased to have John Welshman from uh, University of California, San Diego. And John, I, I printed out part of your CV and it was like three or four pages, but so I'm, I'm going to give my friends the abbreviated version. But um, this goes in a lecture series that we have here at Magazine 3 been doing for many, many years. And um, when we read an extraordinary article written by John about Cosima von Bonin, Bronwyn Griffith here, that is the curator of the collection, came up with a brilliant idea that we would first ask John if he wanted to print his article in, in our publication and then at the latest stage come here to Stockholm. So um, he's here now and uh, he's a distinguished professor in California and he has uh, written a massive amount of books and essays and I remember his column in the uh, late 80s, early 90s in, in Art Forum. We just spoke before this lecture and John told me that he has collaborated with 20 publications with the recently deceased artist uh, Mike Kelly. And uh, John is also the chairman of, of the Mike Kelly Foundation, which is in its infancy in terms of, of future projects and ideas. So um, John is here to talk to us about um, Cosima's artistry, which I think Magazine 3 is surely one of the few institutions in Scandinavia uh, that has followed her for uh, a number of years and uh, in the year 2000 actually commissioned works by her and uh, as late as last year we acquired one more work by her for the collection. So. Uh, Great to have you here. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, uh, David. And uh, thanks to Bronwyn and Sarah for making the invitation so generous and easy. It's great to be with you um, tonight. And I'm going to talk about Cosima's work. Um, Cosima's work is very puzzling uh, and, uh, in a sense, self-consciously enigmatic. When I was working on a show uh, of her um, recent uh, projects in, in Bregenz uh, a couple of years ago, I set myself the task to uh, really see if I could unstitch, undo some of this enigma and opacity that surrounds the way simply that her work makes meaning. How does it make meaning? Um, and that's what I'm going to share with you tonight. And I'm going to do it, I guess, through a, a relatively old-fashioned uh, term, or by putting that term uh, forward, which is the idea of metaphorical reference and how it's structured and put into play around Cosima's work. So I guess it's obvious that many contemporary artists make elaborate and profound use of metaphorical structures, securing their, if you like, post-postmodern distance from the critical immediacies of the recent past and the profound anti-metaphorical turn of the late 1950s, which prompted artists such as Jasper Johns and Frank Stella, perhaps in part tongue-in-cheek, to state that things were only and always just things. In their different ways, well, let, let me just show you this Jackson Pollock, which actually I like very much for this question of metaphorical reference, because 
in another piece of research that I was doing, I noted that uh, this image, purportedly one of the first all-over abstract drip paintings, was in fact entered vicariously into metaphorical relationships by the critic Clement Greenberg, who provided its title, Full Fathom Five, which was a primary metaphor from Shakespeare, borrowed, augmented, readdressed to this work. But probably what happened in this case was that Pollock offered us a sort of second or even third order literalization or security for the metaphor. Because as I read the work, um, it was seen by Greenberg probably on the floor or tacked onto the wall in a provisional state. He responded to the predominant sea green hue of the image, gave it this title, borrowed from Shakespeare's The Tempest, Full Fathom Five, My Father Lies, is the song uh, in, in that play. And then Pollock, in turn, reacted to that gesture of metaphorical nomination by returning to the image, um, as you can clearly see on the top right-hand side, and I provided a detail there uh, next to it, putting on the last marks of the work. We can see they're the last marks because they stand uh, across and over the surface, smearing them with the finger and the palette knife. We can see because there are finger marks and palette knife marks there. So the only marks that are not dripped on the entire canvas. Then circling that ensemble of deliberated marks with a black circle, which you can clearly see giving a kind of porthole aperture into the work. And it's also clear that he's painted here an anchor form. So anchoring the work quite literally into relationship with this marine metaphor, which by the way, will be one of the main things I'm going to talk about in relationship to von Bonin's uh, metaphorical um, imaginary. Okay, there's John's, there's Stella from 1968. So in their different ways, minimalism and conceptual art can be seen to mark what I'll call the final resting place for anti-tropic discourse. The first by concentrating on the perceptual thereness of singular objects and groups of objects. The second by challenging visuality itself with the new hegemony of language so that only or the only metaphoricity that might remain would be a debate on its very possibility on the inside and outside of things using a prepositional and propositional language that generally sidestepped its procedures. This is Mel Bochner's theory of boundaries from 69 to 70. Art and language, or Mel Ramsden, 100% abstract from 1968. Kasuth's one and series, for example, brings forward the tripartite constitution of a common object in three literal manifestations as material object, photographic representation, linguistic definition. But in many ways, the New York postmodernism that was built, in a manner of speaking at least, on these two movements, here the notion of metaphoricity was critically redirected so that the idea of standing in was oriented towards questions of gender, institutionality, race, and identity. Seeing something as something else became a smokescreen, seen through frosty or opaque glass as here, or simply 
a mistake, as Kruger puts it, for seeing it the way it should have been seen. Now, in the German context, metaphors of a kind flourished more vigorously. Joseph Boyce suggested that the artist himself was a living metaphor for both art and politics. In a different vein, Germany itself and the mythical, distant, and tragic recent past of the nation became powerful tokens of metaphorical sublimity or decadence. It was in this heady compound of metaphor to physics uh, that produced a reaction spearheaded by Martin Kippenberger and others in the Cologne scene in the 70s and 80s, producing a strain of art that was ironic, humorous, and debunking, grounded in the more unglamorous manifestations of popular culture. The Kippenberger milieu gave rise to what's been termed a regimen of discursive stupidity. I like this phrase in German, discursive Dummheit, characterized by insider jokes, overlong narratives, gratuitous appropriations, collective authorship, and pervasive diffidence. Now, metaphors didn't perish here. To the contrary, they flourished with intermittent, if directionless, vigor but they were almost entirely paired of their romantic catharsis on the one hand or their social critique on the other. They were occasional, situational, and entirely perishable. Now, von Bonin, of course, emerges in the wake of this generation and was confronted by circumstances in which the metaphoricity or metaphoricity itself, had been by turns overblown, weighted with various kinds of dubious morality, utterly relinquished and disdainfully used. Kippenberger, Untitled, 1982. Often referred to as gnomic, von Bonin's work seems at first sight, but to a certain extent also on its own recognizance, to be embalmed in a network of counter-hermeneutic passivity and differential exclusions. Both the artist and the critics closest to her have made repeated assertions that her activities done in the name of art conduct themselves as avoidance devices beset with the enigmatic auras of an aversion therapy. When ardor is replaced by ennui, from 2006. Early on in her career, von Bonin put it rather stridently, but at the same time, and typically, carefully. There is, quote, no hidden agenda in my work. I am not political, issue no proclamation, and so-called women's art doesn't exist for me. Now, others have delivered on the vivid implications of there being nothing to read into or out of her work, so that von Bonin becomes an aesthetic specter, an escape artist, absconding through the rear exit, quote, at the last minute, whose, quote, ghostliness illuminates only one responsibility to the declarative, quote, cowardice of her own withdrawal. This is relax, it's only a ghost the installation uh, from Documenta 
in which the subtext of the phantom meets the undecidability of the Rorschach test. Now, as I read through the essays, reviews, and catalog texts on her work that have appeared to date, this shifting system of exegetical abstinence includes a repertoire of attributes that I want to annotate here with the traces, at least, of what, in these trying circumstances, we might term an art historical relativity. Such a response is only possible, I would maintain, because in addition to the exorbitant provisionality that so clearly hedges the semantic perimeters of her work, few artists, with the exception of those who trade exclusively in appropriation and art world illusion, have packed, I think, such an extraordinary range of clear or covert references to both art movements and other artists or particular locations and intermittently specific objects into the sequencing of their works. While these may or may not be configured as, quote, association traps, what I want to do here is to sketch some of these relations, make a few comments on the referential networks they engender and dispute, and then enlarge with just one strand of the socio-aesthetic DNA woven together in von Bonin's oeuvre, the metaphoric relations it subtends between common images and popular idioms, and the forms of ironic humor thus engendered. How then has the provocative opacity associated with von Bonin been mobilized? Well, first, von Bonin and her interlocutors appear committed to various aspects of what might be termed an aspiration for social engagement, but are, at the same time, happy to mask it with a camouflage of willing political diffidence. This is untitled Kreber über Kreber from 1990 with Prada 2000. Hermes, sorry, also 2000, didn't want to forget Hermes. Secondly, while sometimes outspoken about her position as a woman and on the work and location of other women artists, the von Bonin discourse is often folded, in, folded into what I want to term a kind of para-feminist restraint. Thirdly, we can detect within and across these positions and between them, between them rather and the artist's other interests and recoils, something that amounts to a negative impress or shadow economy of the issues and presuppositions that have informed institutional critique and its recent legacies. Finally, though this is not the end of it, von Bonin's oeuvre is subject to various forms of authorial dissolve as its creative agencies are collapsed into one or another mode of collaborative dissipation in which the artist often relinquishes the lead microphone to merge with the backing vocals of a given project. The other side of this question is constituted by a conjugation of stealthy allusions to the dissident project of artistic self-reference, interrupted by elements of an often thoroughgoing biographical disavowal. 
Now, this problem has many other aspects, of course. One of them, for example, refers to the important context or milieu for the work in Cologne. Now, several authors have written about the critical double bind that confronts them as either insiders or, as in my case, almost complete outsiders to the various coteries and subgroups of the vigorous and off-handedly self-conscious Cologne scene as it has developed from the later 80s to the present. Now, outsiders are clearly not privy to any number of references and allusions to various issues or incidents particular to this Rhineland urban ethos. And so, are confronted with the possibly uncomfortable circumstance of not being able or invited to get it, even when getting is unceremoniously upended. Insiders, on the other hand, are somewhat overdetermined the other way round, for they are often caught in the unstable space between knowledge and commitment, becoming, in effect, parties to, and not occasionally constituents of, the work itself. However, this is Dirk von Lautzau. However, none of these conditions is of special concern to the majority of von Bonin's critics and interlocutors. The most loquacious of the insiders, Dirk himself, whose reformatting of the press release and surrogate rerouting of the artistic, quote, statement also takes us over to the artist's relation to institutional critique. But this also suggests, as I noted before, that there is, quite simply, no ulterior meaning, this would be Dirk's position, in von Bonin's work so that the apparently privileged points of view emerging from within her circles of work and play is in fact a kind of mirage, and the artist's affiliates are no more likely to have access to some inner truth to this work than, say, the kid who, quote, loafs through an exhibition and makes a casual remark about its fluffiness, to use the example cited by um, von Lautzau himself in relation to von Bonin's installation at Documenta 12. While outsiders, on the other hand, often point, either casually or uneasily, to their extramural position, they seldom allow it to, be, uh, to confound or inform their discussion. The position of exteriority to something seemingly significant is generally flagged but then abstractly negotiated or evaded altogether. Now, this effect is one of the subtle steerage mechanisms of von Bonin's oeuvre, what von Lautzau, in a reprise of the nautical metaphoricity to which I will return, refers to as her ghostly piloting. And I will find myself doing a version of the same thing, somewhat against the grain of my own inclination. There are, of course, various parallels in the wider culture for the semantic circumnavigations to which von Bonin is clearly given. Some correlate with the virtuoso encoding of corporatist virtuality, or what Matteo Pasquinelli and others have termed the distribution of cognitive capital. These include internodal harvesting, in particular achieved by Google's page rank search algorithm. 
what we encounter here is an aphasic laterality that aims to siphon off micro-increments of the regimens of personal preference or desire set up to contend with older order top-to-bottom constructions of instrumental power with their panoptic or panoramic purviews. Von Bonin offers a concatenated series of molecular descents from the probities of normative envisioning, making, or critique. She does not do so in the name of some free-range utopia on the model of the organic chicken or the latter-day nomad, but rather by a process of creative culling from the everyday operationality of heterogeneous systems. A form of appropriation underwrites all this, to be sure, a certain gratuitous and unrepentant taking, but like Google's, Von Bonin's harvesting of objects and issues in a terra incognita of the ready-made takes place far from the take-and-return economy of the representational commodity object, wheel, rack, urinal. Now, the ramifying provisionality of von Bonin's response to all this accorded well, I think, with the curatorial parameters of Documenta 12 in 2007, where she was exhibited so prominently in the cavernous first room of the Documenta Halle and elsewhere. In an interview published in Art Forum immediately before the opening of this edition, the artistic director, Roger Burgler, noted his desire to reinvent the routing system of contemporary curatorial practice to break with the conventional metropolitan, quote, trade routes plied between New York and London, Paris and Berlin, and to offer new forms of sequencing and referentiality predicated on parametaphorical relations of, quote, fragility, idiosyncratic connections, and what he termed radical transhistorical exchange. That von Bonin's work is held as saliently emblematic of these orientations was attested by the reproduction of her cotton and linen piece, Deprionen, A Voyage to the Sea, from 2006. Not only was hers the only contemporary artwork pictured in the interview, with the exception of an embalmed giraffe from Palestine, um, that would be a component of Peter Friedel's zoo story from 2007, eventually shown in a space adjacent. But her fabric work purports to negotiate with the very conditions of journeying and its root systems. Typically, however, it short-circuits these references rather than in, than in some sense exemplifying them. For by using the preposition to the sea, not on or in the sea. By using that preposition, von Bonin seems to refer not to some actual ocean voyage or maritime trade route. This mode was, we might say, historically deferred to the quasi-documentary poetic plenarity of Alan Sekula's fish story, maybe the other major maritime work in that exhibition, but rather, as confirmed by the caravan-like disposition of this composition to an approach to the sea, presumably over land. 
deliberately associated by the curator with the fragility his exhibition espouses, von Bonen's productions are held at the same time to resemble, quote, an ironic grammar of historical form, end quote. It is, of course, the irony and play attached so promiscuously to von Bonin's work and its penumbra of quizzically associative allusions that activate the consequentially tenuous nature of her negotiation with history. Now, it seems to be significant that both the premier international exhibition and magazine of contemporary art picked up on the marine metaphor that indeed pervades von Bonin's work. Sorry, that's the um, image um, De Prionen, which of course you can see um, in the adjacent room. As I walked from the Documenta Halle back to my hotel uh, after visiting the exhibition, I passed by a hair salon in an unfashionable back street that also seemed to have been oddly organized around a nautical obsession past unmodified from the era of Willy Brandt. Perhaps there was something inevitable or cosmological in this landlocked location, Castle, about the call of the sea. But as you can see, this is also something that von Bonin thought about because the image on the bottom left is her own untitled Damen Salon woman's hair parlor from 1992, an establishment seemingly in need of a theme. Now, unlike the bitter, sweet melancholy of Alan Sekula's photo narrative, Fish Story, which documents the impact of containerization on global shipping throughout the 1990s, or in another dimension, Damien Hirst's decision to stage Freeze, the 1988 degree show of his Goldsmiths College contemporaries in a former seaman's gym in London's Docklands, Von Bonin is neither attempting to represent a disappearing history, Sekula, nor grabbing a derelict space in order to aestheticize the contradictions between art and industry. So one way to understand the effects that von Bonin solicits with her marine metaphors is to look across to the wider issue of the sonic and semantic spaces negotiated by many others of her works. We will find, if we do this, that the kinds of reference for which she often reaches relate to a loosely configured historical series which turns on a playful, sometimes dissident, unfurling of the signifying energies caught up in a certain denomination of speech and writing, especially those imbued with the concentration and density of vernacular rhetoric. Aspects of this tradition were already established in marginal and secular representation as early as the Middle Ages, where they emerged with special vigor in various capitals, illuminated and architectural, and misericords, which took on the visualization of proverbial discourse. At the bottom right here is a wood-carved misericord of a siren luring a seaman uh, in a passing boat from around 1390, 
from um, St. Boltol's Church in Boston, Lincolnshire, England, the significance of which will become apparent later. A large stock of sayings and common wisdom, often misogynist and derogatory, scatological or defamatory, was mobilized then alongside references to romances, riddles, and marginal episodes from the Bible and elsewhere. As Michael Camille has suggested, these visualizations were not simply illustrations of the texts that partly underwrote them, but active commentaries on the values and implications of written law. More than this, and more clearly aligned with the provisional exchange systems reckoned with by von Bonen, they testified to and seemed, quote, to celebrate the flux of becoming rather than the deliverance of being. Now, the lineage of text-driven visualization persevered somewhat against the grain of the increasingly dominant generic material and institutional specializations that took hold in the aftermath of the Renaissance and were later sanctified by the discursive strictures of um, Gotthold Lessing's Laocon, or the limits of painting and poetry from 1766, which fed in turn the modernist demand for medium specificity and autonomy. Local aphorisms and saws or sayings a subject to literal visualization in many of the works by Peter Bruegel the Elder, especially this work, his oil on panel, Netherlandish Proverbs from 1559, also known as the Blue Cloak or the Topsy-Turvy World, uh, which is in uh, Berlin. A work that assembles more than 100 renditions of Flemish proverbs including several still in circulation with variants in languages such as German and English that relate to maritime law and fisheries, swimming against the tide, or here, big fish eat little fish. This is an engraving after Bruegel's work dedicated to this specific saying of 1556. Now, remarkably, these fraught coiled phrases and their like form part of the semantic mobilization of von Bonin's own peripatetic journey to the sea, which zigzags through photographs with altered texts taken in a fisherman's club in Newcastle, used for the artist's first exhibition at the Christian Nagel Gallery in Cologne in 1992, which you see here. In the same year, she made the tiny colored varnished clay simulacra, untitled Fish 1, untitled Fish 2, whose material fragility and referential obliqueness belie the stronger language of the sea with which she would later take up. Now, as with the proverbial emblematizations we have already encountered, the marine recurs in a linguistically detourned variant across the front cover of the New York newspaper used in this work, untitled Not Bad for Openers, made with Colin Deland in 1993, the headline of which you can see reads, Off the Hook, 
next to a headshot of Woody Allen and referring, just to remind you back to those days, of to the judgment in his trial for child molestation when he married his adopted daughter. Off the hook, of course, offers another linguistic rejoinder to the chorus of aquatic references. But this is only the beginning of von Bonin's engagement with the sea, its people, and the creatures that live in it. In 2002, we begin to witness the arrival of a faintly absurd, beaming, behatted sailor's face with attenuated body in von Bonin's wool and cotton canvas pieces, such as Marine Findichstach from 2002 and La Marine des Sensations Fortes from the same year. Now, while the most famous cartoon sailor Popeye, who first appeared in 1929, did occasionally smile, he was more often associated with a grumpy disposition fueled by his intermittent spinach-induced superhuman strength. The smiling marine figure recurs in a diptych that pairs a sea print photograph and a drawing titled Really Stuck and Dropping Out by Staying In from 2002, where it becomes party to one of the most confessional and I think difficult moments in von Bonin's career. Another round of maritime reference is found in a different mode of appropriation, this time of the shapes and forms of the central and defining part of a water-going vessel, the hull. A good deal of von Bonin's work in 2002, 2001 as well, was dedicated to this subject. Uh, in an exhibition at the Kunstlerhaus Graz, Cosima von Bonin's fund-oriented equipment, in October 2002, she showed a scary cruiser of the type first designated in the early 20th century by the young Finn Gustav Estlander, an icon of nautical rationality and design finesse. The referential implications of this hull were described by the curator at Graz as, quote, not only a metaphor for unfettered proliferation and boundless world domination, but above all, a symbol of failure, misadventure, perhaps even hubris. Somewhat earlier, von Bonin had cross-referenced the whole shape with performative elements, the actors appearing in sailors' costumes, uh, along with her signature mushrooms, a conjunction that was brought to fruition in a series with the governing title, Life is Too Short to Stuff a Mushroom, from 2002, which used the whole shape based on the design of a warship by the well-known Swedish shipwright Knud Riemers. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'll get corrected later. These hulls, or better in German, Schiffrumps, went through several stages of modification under the general title as they lay on their sides, um, bleached, beached out of their aquatic elements, propped on their keel fins with the hull itself, again as in the next room here, often covered with patterned materials. This is 
perception object from 2001 in which von Bonin converts the pure shape and coloration of the hull into a post-minimalist object, though one with a streamlined appearance unknown to the predominant rectilinearity of the earlier movement. Now the hulls and related items were brought into a more sustained relation to performance and manipulation in the videos that make up two positions at once, first produced in Cologne in 2004. The performance, sculpture, and video of capitulation uh, from the same year addresses issues of conformity, indoctrination, play, and ritual within the context of an obedience school for humans as well as dogs. At von Bonin's exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the title of which was named for maritime communication, Roger and Out, the piece took the form of a constellation of rooms connected by interior tunnels and slides. It was viewed using overhead mirrors and staircases positioned so that the spectator could look in from the top at a variety of interior elements, including an actual size sculpture of a catamaran sailboat covered in gray tweed, enlarged soft sculptures of toy dogs, and chalk drawings on blackboard-like walls. Surreptitiously converting vessel into vassal, and the words actually come from the same root, von Bonin images the awkward manipulation of a catamaran in a confined space with a hint of the dysfunctional sea-growing craft, a hint that it might be a surrogate aquatic biped. Making a move for which we should now be well prepared, von Bonin unfurls an indirect commentary on her own metaphorical proclivities in the marine field and by implications on metaphors themselves. For in this work, too quick for binoculars, backdrop for a boatswain, 2001-2, shown here at the exhibition Freeport um, in, uh, I think, September, December, 2001, she seems to allude to the fugitive nature of her own allusive scene. Whatever makes it up passes by to be visible under scrutiny or be seen from far away with the prosthetic aid of binoculars. In this sense, her marine metaphoricity can only be a backdrop, hintergrund, even for someone who works on the water, like a boatswain or a bootsman in German. The subjects of von Bonin's aesthetic aquarium wait like free radicals to form unstable compounds with the shifting valences of objects, performances, and photographs. At the same time, they are quietly mustered as a form of anecdotal obverse or vagrant verso to the poeticizing revitalization of social documentary forms negotiated by Sekula in Fish Story, a work that, as I have suggested already, was as central to the ethos of Documentary 11 as von Bonin's work was to the next installment 
in 2007, where Sekula actually showed this work, Shipwreck and Workers, uh, version 3 for Castle 2007. Now, von Bonin moved from court and displayed fish to fish simulations and linguistic and formal metaphors, deploying sailors, hulls, nautical knots, as here, and many other referential forms, situating many of these pieces in a variety of actual port cities, including Stockholm and Hamburg. This is Port Side Home, Port Said, from 2001, made in collaboration with Jan Timme. But what other kinds of sense can we make of the persistence of marine imagery in von Bonin's work? We've already encountered one possible interpretation, which Bennett Simpson also contends in his essay for the MOCA exhibition, Roger and Out, that, quote, capitulation and dog school speak of maintaining, making the boat fit. Von Bonin's boats have always seemed symbols for herself, the artist out of water, met or mastered by others, cumbersome with grace. Now, another interpretive route follows the reference of these works out of the immediate situation of the artist as they track aspects of the marine metaphoricity taken on in the wider modernist tradition, as with famous works such as Vladimir Tatlin's Self-Portrait of a Sailor um, and a whole range of nautical imagery by Pablo Picasso. At the bottom center is a study for a figure that didn't, in the end, find its place in the brothel scene represented by the Demoiselle d'Avignon in 1907. While the masculine sexed up sailor is eventually ushered off stage, removed from one of the iconic images of 20th century art, the latency and motivation of this figure were never forgotten. But more directly relevant, perhaps, is the work of a range of more contemporary figures, including Paul Gurney's, whose building of a ship uh, in order simply to burn it on the open sea is referenced in the title of the Hamburg show, Brother Paul Goes to Sea, and, of course, Bastian Adder, who set off alone in a small, unfashionable sailing boat in 1975, the antithesis of the sleek-hulled part objects presented by von Bonin in order to cross the Atlantic in 60 days, a project, of course, that ended in his vanishing without trace. But there is yet another vein of reference, I think, that supplies von Bonin's nautical imaginary. This one, on the surface at least, more menacing and fearsome. This sense emerges gradually, almost comically, in a canvas and cotton piece from 2006 in the grip of the lobster, before taking up with a kind of ironic anxiety in Seasons in the Abyss from 2006, seen here in the Documenta installation, which is crossed with formal menace in one of the 
gate-like structures that provide another metaphorical subtext for von Bonin, the powder-coated steel piece, Shark Lock, from 2007. As often, this serial reference backs itself into a kind of bathos, signaled by the addition of colorful materials to a would-be dangerous marine creature, which we see in Structur uh, from 2007. Von Bonin, in a sense, draws all this to a knowing conclusion in Decoy de Kraka, number three, from 2007, in which the mythic monstrosity of the Kraken is allied with the aquatic camouflage of the decoy. But von Bonin is not alone in exploring the implications of cephalopodic imagery. This is Tim Hawkinson's octopus made in the same year, 2007. The legible form of the work is the gestalt product of a body engendered by the manipulation of material subunits of various dimensions, which, considered individually, have an altogether different signification. All are photographs of various parts of the artist's own body, notably its tactile extremities, including puckered lips, fingers and hands. The re-embodied cephalopod is brought into being here by an elaborate collage based on different twists of the artist's hand as its starting point, which is set with multiple formations of his pursed lips and finished at the extremities of the eight limbs by the fractal or Fibonacci-like curlicues of differently scaled and resolved photographs of the artist's bent fingers. Now this folding of reference from human to animal is not based merely on formal rhyming or functional illusion, for most octopuses are equipped with chemoreceptors so that the creature has a capacity actually to taste what it is touching. As noted in their different ways by both von Bonin and Hawkinson, the octopus is also adept at camouflage, aided by certain specialized skin cells which can change the apparent color, opacity, and reflectiveness of the epidermis. Chromatophores contain yellow, orange, red, brown, or black pigments, and most species have a palette of three of these colors. Other color-changing cells found in the octopus include reflective iridophores and white lucifers. The body of the octopus, then, is a corporeal shifter that uses advanced techniques of self-modification radically to refigure its own appearance. And both artists have, in this sense, engaged in a kind of zoopsia, the technical name for the visual hallucination of animals, which refers to the delusion that one sees or perceives animals in various non-animular forms and materials. Like von Bonin, Hawkinson's image alludes to a wide representational history for the octopus, dating back to its presence on some of the founding objects of Western art in Minoan ceramics, which you can see on the bottom right, its conflation with veritable monsters like the Leviathan and the Kraken, and its emergence in the early 20th century when Eastlander was at work on his elegant hulls 
as a racialist metaphor for the yellow or eastern peril. The notion of marine menace and violence that forms one perhaps small part of von Bonin's interests is also, of course, the defining element of Paul McCarthy's recent Pirates of the Caribbean, inaugurated in 2005. This extended installation and video is also one of the few contemporary works that, like von Bonin's, takes on the specific form and shape of several maritime vessels. For McCarthy, the massive frigate seen here in his studio near Los Angeles, and the more domesticated houseboat. Both artists return to nautical design histories, McCarthy to the golden era of the pirate vessel, and von Bonin to the heyday of modern nautical engineering. As a consequence, both artists deploy multiple references to a variety of vessels and small craft, McCarthy even isolating this uh, as a kind of meta-reference in the form of a ship-shaped bar here, you can see at the bottom of the image, which abuts the scenographic side of the frigate, which itself doubles as a kind of village architecture. Both artists use the nautical system to reflect on their own performative positions, McCarthy directly, as in his role as first mate, with his prosthetic belly. Von Bonin much more elusively, as we saw a moment ago. For both, maritime references have been present in their work from its earliest days. We saw Von Bonin's photograph of a fish in a vitrine from her one of her first shows, I think her first show in Cologne in 1992. This is McCarthy's Sailor's Meat from 1976, uh, one of his first exercises in video. And of course, both artists use ships and vessels as models, metaphors, and at the same time as sets for video production. McCarthy in his colossal studio near the Santa Fe Dam in Azusa, to the east of Los Angeles, and von Bonin in the video components of two positions at once and several other pieces. Both develop a network of relational references to popular and high cultures simultaneously. Von Bonin to the cartoonish sailor on the one hand and the legacies of Bassianada and Paul Gurney's on the other. McCarthy to Disneyland and its movie spin-offs, but at the same time to Pasolini and Edward Albee in the nightmarish degeneration of domestic normality into rage and disgust transacted in the houseboat sequences. Now, while these congruences are surely striking, it's also clear that McCarthy attacks his subject, the matter of uh, piracy and mayhem using perfervid strategies of visceral simulation, while von Bonin's preference is for diffidence, restraint, and almost febrile illusion. Interestingly, McCarthy's houseboat images, which depict the symbolic manipulation of bodies in relation to items of furniture and glimpse, therefore, at the atrocities of Abu Ghraib, offer a kind of parable-like declension of domestic furnishings 
that can also serve to introduce a second of von Bonin's areas of metaphorical reference. In an early work, the teacher, von Bonin, showed that she was already aware of the transactional possibilities between inanimate domestic objects and the domains of power and authority, history and symbolic reference, an image that she continued, or a process that she continued the following year with the more abstractly organized piece made from cardboard and tissue paper that you see here, but called Untitled from 1993. In 1992, von Bonin made a series of legs-only pieces, Cecil, Schrank, Hocker, Kleinkommode, Stuhl, among others, in which the feet, casters, or legs were subtracted from various objects of furniture and positioned on the ground as if what was above them was still present. These pieces offer another imagination for the investigation of remaindered negative space, reinflecting a lineage established by Bruce Nauman and Rachel, Rachel Whiteread. These are multiple works of spaces inside and under a variety of tables and chairs. In 1994, von Bonin produced a series of works using photographs of common items of mid-20th century furniture derived from various clustered apartments. These untitled pieces were accompanied by a sequence of parenthetical proper names referring to mountain peaks such as Auxerrer, alluding to a mountain range in the Planel group of the Otzal Alps in the South Tyrol in Italy, or of famous mountaineers, Messner, referring, you see him here, to Reinhold Messner from the South Tyrol, often cited as the greatest mountain climber of all time. Vinazza, referring to Johann Baptist uh, Vinazza, and Kostner, referring to the legendary Alpine guide, Franz Kostner, um, who lived from 1905 to 2006 and was a famous pioneer of skiing and winter tourism. Set in this loose sequence are several other names redolent of the Alpine history of the South Tyrol and the Dolomites and the minority languages of Ladin. They include, uh, and I won't go through this in detail, Rizzo, Tala, Carbon, Bosser, this one uh, is Castlatamur, Tribus, Di Giacco, Bergamo, Petalini, as well as a number of other nominal references such as Kofla, probably designating the social philosopher um, who worked in Cologne in the mid-20th century. Now, tying these references down is no easy matter. Petalini, for example, might refer to the politician, legal scholar, and economist Oscar Petalini, who represents the South Tyrolean minority um, in the area around Bolzano, might refer to his brother, who was a journalist and author, or even to the Apicultura Petalini near Rovereto, and several other references besides. But what I want to suggest here, you know, through this maze of complications and proper names, is really one point of entry into these semantically busy but carefully evasive referential possibilities. And this arrives from another mode of inquiry into what we might loosely term the Tyrolean aesthetic. 
In his early, darkly ironic novella, Amras, written in 1964, the Austrian writer Thomas Bernhardt delivers a tour de force of Tyrolean pessimism and mountain malaise. The contextual dystopia of the suicidal siblings whose meditations organize this story is constituted by the unremittingly bleak panorama of a, quote, alpine terrain, numb with all that darkness and enigmatic nature and upheaval of reason, overwhelmed by a smothering, omnipresent Tyrolean ennui, the brothers perceive themselves to be, quote, mocked by ourselves, by the landscape, by the sciences, by the human confinement in darkened cells, mocked by the arts. Ridiculed thus by everything around them, including art, their only form of contention with the impasse that results is to indulge in a round of seemingly offbeat actions eerily similar to those taken on by von Bonin 30 years later. They, quote, push the tables and easy chairs and benches and cabinets around at night, accompanying this activity with crazy, confused shouts and crumbling sentences. For Walter and his brother, shut up in their tower in Amras, the frenzied redisposition of domestic accoutrements offers the only possible relief in the face of a symbolic horizon that has turned entirely sour. Von Bonin's quotidian furnishings and allegorical chattel point by contrast to the highest points, literally mountain peaks, and their human conquerors, those famous mountaineers, in an arc of reference whose nadir had already been reached by Bernhardt with all the consequences of the degeneration of language itself. In another Tyrolean novella, playing Watton from 1969, Bernhard adds to the irregular figure of referential incontinence sketched here with a little forward thinking. This can also stand in for the locative politics adumbrated by von Bonin. Watton is a card game for four people in two teams in the course of which members of each team attempt to communicate what cards they hold to each other, but of course not to their opponents. As the ground rules of this game shift from valley to valley, village to village, even from door to door, the game becomes a cipher for the powers and dangers of local knowledge and the capacity, both direct and dubious, of language to maintain or engender it. Now, I've only been able to talk today about two metaphorical clusters in von Bonin's work, and even here I feel I've not done what good metaphors do themselves, which is to venture deep under the surface of things. But the marine and the domestic are, of course, not the only associated fields that von Bonin weaves together. Indeed, we can find many of her metaphors in places that we might not expect such as the regime of citations or paraphrases sounded out around the proper names of the modernist and postmodern traditions. This densely 
elusive scene is made visible in her very first art world project, the installation in Munstrasse, Hamburg, with Josef Strau in 1990, an array of helium-filled balloons, each marked with the name of an artist from the conceptual generation, along with the dates of their birth and first exhibition. Here, von Bonin flourishes her elusive credentials in a delicious combination of inflation and self-parody crossed with the festive apprehension of a debutante. Her staging of iconographic reference is, however, generally less directed, but she does allude, for example, to Andy Warhol's multiples in her latex on canvas Elvis series of 1993, complete with its exaggerated magnifications of the print culture of celebrity reproduction, to the confound confrontational self-imaging of Linda Benglis, famous ad from Art Forum, or Carolee Schneeman in her piece that you see on the left, untitled Kreba Uber Kreba from 1990, and even, I think, to the documentary presentations of Hans Hacker and others associated with the first round of institutional critique, here in a, another untitled piece from her first US exhibition at the Andrea Rosen Gallery in 1991, which reproduces two identical letters sent to herself and Michael Kreber by a French museum director. And I've put that with, at the bottom, Hans Harker's Schapolsky et al. from 1971. The series of appropriated posters and advertisements made in the same year, one bearing the copy title Ein Plasmanpelz ist kein Luxus, offers a similar reference to the advertising imagery deconstructed by Harker and others, as for example in this work by Harker, but I think you question my motives from 1978 to 79. Several works and series engage more directly with the legacy of other artists, forcing them to become metaphors against their own possibly better judgments. These include the Rodin Museum snapshots taken in 1992, which you see here, the quizzical testimonies to the Japanese-American artist Yoko Ono and the German Mary Bauermeister, both affiliated in the 1960s with the Fluxus movement in Joys and Sorrows of Opium Smokers from 1992, the repurposing of works by her friend Ingeborg Gabriel in Untitled 1993, another wall drawing bearing the text Please Don't Leave Me, which refers to Bastian Ada and is titled for him, which we saw earlier, and a reference you see here to Paul Tech in the three color photographs that make up this work on the top from 2000. In the same year, von Bonin created a series of flag pieces and related works with concentric circular motifs titled after mid-20th century Danish artists, Paul Gurnes, who we've already encountered, her fraternal adoptee, who made numerous colorful site-specific modular or patterned interventions in schools, workplaces, and public buildings in the mid-20th century, roughly speaking, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and Richard Vintour, 
who began his career making various kinds of abstract paintings and prints and was later dedicated to the social and aesthetical principles of recycling. Of course, the formal appearance of the flags and the circles gives rise to yet another set of references to the targets of Jasper Johns and later um, Kenneth Noland in the US, and then back again to the Scandinavian references. Somewhat in the same vein, one of von Bonin's mushroom pieces, Frank Auerbach, you see it here, number 11, 2000, is titled after the mid-20th century British painter, whose work you see next to it, while a series of thin, multicolored foam and cotton leaning pieces made in 1998 called Boo Williams, after the eponymous Chicago DJ and producer, take its place in a series of nods to music and DJ culture. Um, and one would also include Leyland Scar, Hall and Oates, seen here, 2002, Eric D. Clark, and a piece called Rockstar Appropriation from 2003. Characteristically, the Boo or Boo Williams works strike out in another elusive direction as their soft plank-like forms also refer to the leaning slabs and boards of John McCracken and the Bar de Bois of the Polish-born artist Andrzej Kadere, um, who died in 1978. The latter reference is more direct in the felt-covered bamboo poles of untitled 1998, a cluster of 15 velvet-clad battens, which you see here, called the Pierre from 1999 and related pieces. At the same time, beginning with the installation in Munstrasse, von Bonin punctuates her work with a series of art-world meta-references, which take on the control conditions of the gallery, the exhibition, and of value itself. In the 1990 piece, the artist addressed the very nature of the debut show in her own first outing. In her first video work, the rambunctious 14-minute Merry Pilgrimage from 1991, shot the following year in Super 8, von Bonin corralled the stable of artists in her Cologne gallery, along with the gallerist Christian Nagel, repurposing them as the cast in a crypto-religious fable replete with allegorical skits on vanity, allegiance, ego, competition, romance, and appearance. In the first Graz fan festival from 1995, von Bonin's response to an invitation to participate in the Forum Stadtpark Graz upped the stakes of her front onto the contemporary art scene by creating an in-house Cologne culture camp. And while clearly less signaled, less obvious, such meta-references also crop up in the freer-form tropes of her later works, such as this one, Bonin's Estate from 2004, and the Tweed and Cotton Condition Report of 2007. So to conclude, the special Moebus strip fronted by imagistic language, backed by the language of images and spiked with comedic accents, offers just one measure 
of the imbrications, punctual, dispersed, personal, and historical, around which von Bonin's enterprise is stitched. The soft fences that she made in 2000 lend a knowing permeability to other edges of this work. Partially and inexactly, they hem in all the uprising things in von Bonin's eclectically contingent practice that poke up or hang themselves in front of us, from mushrooms and toadstools to platforms, open podia and stacks, from flags and banners to giant plush puppies, wall-sized underwear, or a simple snapshot of the artist and her friends swinging from the branch of a tree. Perhaps the most abiding strata precipitated in von Bonin's molten to and fro with reference are laid down by her perusal of perimeter conditions themselves, whether through the figures of fences, gates, hides, temporary structures, or other architectural in Framements in both the boxing up and the vitrinization of things and their sublimation as remainders in the ghost furniture pieces of 1992, or through the battle she wages against various conditions of confinement, literally and physically, in two positions at once, spiritually and euphemistically in the merry pilgrimage, and psychologically in the declensions of melancholy, lamentation, hiding out, and even capitulation that outcrop here and there in the artist's 20 years of work. But on the other side of constriction are various fountains of energy or dissipation the effusions of squirting in spray and drinking drunkard's blazon, cocktail blazon from 2001, the excess of Prada or caviar, the double menace of marine life in the grip of the lobster and madcap missiles, the Miss Riley series, as well as various personal mantras chanted in the key of carpe diem, fly high, and life's too short to stuff a mushroom. Glamorous thrusts and parries, cunning plots and ruses, dubious foils and retreats, the camouflage of inside, over and out. Fencing lessons, indeed. Or, if you prefer, this evening with this work, let them eat cake. Thank you. Uh, but if anyone has any questions or, or comments, I'd be pleased to take them. Yeah. So one of my, my question was that she's so often collaborating and willfully collaborating and putting the names of her collaborators as co-authors on her works. And I was wondering if you think that this is another one of her strategies for evading um, categorization and sort of camouflaging herself. That's not clear exactly who's done what sometimes. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, as far as I can see, she's used every single available opportunity and parameter afforded by the exhibition system 
the press release, the uh, the artist's statement, often not written by her but by someone else, you know, forms of critical poetic apposition as opposed to expository explanation, collaborative procedures, but of all kinds, not just with visual artists. I mean, on some occasions she'll simply take over someone's work and put it in the exhibition space, um, not as her own, but as itself, but under the name of her as an exhibiting artist. In, on other occasions, she works up a piece, you know, in, in that more normative, collaborative uh, language with with someone. Um, pretty much all of her recent work has involved a sonic component that's been DJed or borrowed, you know, by other people from with other people. You know, often ideas coming, you know in the depth of the night at parties and so on and so forth, or something heard in a nightclub or wherever it might be. I mean, and, and that's just, I don't know, that's just 10 <laughs> different variants, and she'll use more things. And I mean, anything that an exhibition can do, uh, I, anything that could be seen within its parameters, I think she will overturn and, um, um, you know, question, but not, I mean, as I said earlier on, uh, really, really what she does is, is, is what I think is, is the obverse of the, you know, moral-oriented denomination of institutional critique. I mean, she probably spends more time thinking about those parameters one after the other than even the most institutionally critical of artists, who probably wouldn't think of all of those things. In fact, I can't think of any institutionally critical artist who has traded or played or gamed with, like, absolutely everything about the setup of an exhibition. It's usually much more specific, one or two or three parameters, not a dozen. So, yeah, I mean, your question was, is it a form of camouflage or evasion? It is, but I think in the end, it's um, a proposition about determination to see something, property X, in relationship to something else, constituent Y. And that's the elemental figure of metaphorical transference. So what she's actually done is to simply uh, massively open up the juxtapositional possibilities of seeing something of one kind in relationship to something of another kind. I mean, even if it's something like seeing the work of a particular person as or in the place of the authorial position that ought to have made it and be named for it. I mean, that's a very simple gesture, though I haven't said it in a very simple way, but it becomes more and more complex. And it's one metaphor layered on another, layered on another, so that in the end, I'm suggesting that even her rampant use of proper names, you know, that, that very, that's a very obscure Tyrolean mountain reference series that she made as a one-off uh, for a show, I think, in Italy um, several years ago, and actually really doesn't like. She was very unhappy when I was writing about this because she said she really didn't like it. She was like, got up early in the morning after a long night out and did this piece very quickly and so on. But what was really interesting was that um, that reference I made to Thomas Bernhardt when I was trying to puzzle through it, and I, you know, I think there's something there. When I saw for the first time the exhibition a couple of years ago in Bregenz, you know, I was walking around, and there, right in the middle of the show, was this little altar of images and sound from Thomas Bernhardt, you know, which was totally threw me because I was convinced that I'd found some exterior reference that 
she had either consciously or subconsciously used. I was being a good art historian. And there it was. I mean, I just felt, mm, uh, that's terrific. She'd already thought of that. Though when I mentioned that to her in an email, she didn't, never said that she was thinking of putting that in. And I don't think that she did it as a response to what I had said, because there wasn't enough time. So... Uh, I wonder uh, if you could just uh, say a few words on your view on uh, Martin Kippenberger's legacy in, in Cosima von Inn's uh, work. How do you think she has... Hmm. Uh, how, how is it uh, an homage in some way? Has she turned against him or, I mean, in all of these years, also, also after his death? I, I think with that's spontaneous words yeah. in, 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 in relation to, to their relation, perhaps. I think it's a. I think that's a really key uh, question, and I think it's a very difficult question. And I think, thirdly, that I'm probably myself not the most equipped to answer it because I know Mar I know Kippenberg's work somewhat, but I'm I'm not. A, I've never written about it, and I'm not. I wouldn't count myself for it. Uh, and I actually think, you know, in this particular instance, it's not that I want an escape clause, so I can't answer you. But I actually think if you're going to get a proper answer to that question, you really do need to think about, you know, the different operations, metaphors, appropriations, jokes, or you really do need to know the structure of those and the groupings of those in Kippenberger's works and to make, you know, that would be your basis for mapping them onto and over what von Bonin has done. My, my suspicion would be that there would be uh, really an extraordinarily large number of overlaps, but at the same time, uh, you, know, I th you know, there's something very constitutionally different. It's not, I mean, as we all know, von, you know, Cosima started out, you know, serving behind the bar in Martin's bar and, you know, was totally a groupie in the scene and a very young artist without, at that point, any reputation and so on, although that came quite quickly for her. Uh, so she was totally imbued in that ethos. But I don't think that it's a matter of her just kind of taking up and offering a sort of feminized version of Kippenberg's very actually masculine humor in, in many instances, uh, which I think I've seen alluded to in print. I think there's, um, as I say, there's something very constitutionally different in what Cosima does that, that uh, Kippenberger would never have done. She allows, uh, I guess, residues of the elegance of found form to persevere across the threshold of appropriations that in Kippenberger would be downwardly spiraling, you know? His humor was going down. It's like Mike Keller's humor. It's a humor that's always going down. Her, well, it's not even humor necessarily, but her covert reference can go that way uh, through popular culture and through dirty jokes or stuff like that, no question. But there's something, there's something that's much more um, affirmative and self-consciously enigmatic. You don't really catch Kippenberger being self-consciously enigmatic, right? I mean, something can, can not close itself down and you know, pursue itself to the end in terms of reference in his work. But you kind of know what's going in and you kind of know even what's not coming out. And that's... You know, it, it's much more deliberated. And with Cosimer, I, I don't get that sense. I get the sense that, you know, if, if you want me to put this in a very crude way, she's a more romantic artist than Kippenberger, I think. 
uh, and Kippenberger would not allow himself that kind of romanticism, which isn't to say there aren't moments of that poetic making in his work. I think there are, but even they are much more coded and guarded. Now, Cosmo, I think, catches herself off guard at moments when some of these metaphors don't bite or when they explode the wrong way or when something untoward happens. Uh, she places more faith in, uh, in the ceremony of juxtaposition than Kippenberger. That's how I would put it. Thank you.